to the Cult of Domesticity podcast, a podcast about history, true crime, and whatever life brings us. I'm Courtney, and every week I am joined by another fascinating person. Let's see what we're going to talk about this week. So this month's Patreon shoutouts goes to Jules and Strictly Homicide for joining the collective, as well as a thanks to our other devotees that are sticking around we have bonnie lee Landshark, murderific and obscura a true crime podcast thanks so much guys for contributing to keeping the podcast going and getting a bunch of extra content so if you want to be part of the collective i guess quote unquote officially and get extra episodes check out the patreon like these fine devotees Welcome back, Collective. Mina's back from True Crime Villain. Hello. <laughs> Hi. Um, welcome to episode 55 of True Crime Finland, Panama Papers. <laughs> so, as usual, as the title already suggests, this is a true crime podcast, and it details cases that can be of a disturbing and violent nature. So, because of this, I encourage you to use your discretion and stop listening or skip ahead if you need to. So, today, I am doing a special collaboration with Courtney. Hey! Hi, Courtney. <laughs> Would you like to introduce yes. yourself? So, I'm the host of The Cult of Domesticity, which is a history and true crime podcast. So, you get a little bit of history a little bit of true crime, a lot of great guest co-hosts like Mina. So, yeah. Oh, so that's great. That's like a good mix oh, of yeah. everything. Oh, yeah. All around the world. I've, I think I've pretty much, I've almost hit every continent. I'm getting there. I'm working on it. <laughs> yeah, almost. Yeah. I think got Europe, Asia, North America, um, I the Caribbean, Australia. Yeah, pretty much. I think I just have to get Africa and... S- no, I have South America. So yeah, just Africa, I think, is left. You can do it. trotting. Then you'll have everything. <laughs> yeah, cool trotting. Before we actually get to it, I do want to mention that this is an international case, a very much an international case. Um, and I'm going to go over all the general information. But my point of view, when it comes to like people who were affected or implicated, it will be a bit more Finnish because this is a Finnish true crime podcast after all. And I do do my research in Finnish, so it's like the easiest way to go for me. But I do have a few recommendations if you want to hear more about this uh, topic. There's some Cyberwire episodes on it. Um, there's a few of them. And then there's one that's called Money, Mystery, and Millionaires, the Panama Papers from Stuff They Don't Want You to Know podcast. So if you want to know a bit more maybe on this or you want to hear a different kind of perspective, you could listen that to those. sounds amazing. This case is crazy. And this is a crazy case. And I, I also want to mention that I do have a script, but I'm going to try to speak a bit more freely. So... Please bear with me because it's going to be a bit different this time. Shaking it up. <laughs> Shaking it up. <laughs> so um, I actually have a few terms to define mm-hmm. before we get to it, just to like make sure that everyone's on okay. the map. So first of all, tax haven. Because these are complicated issues, so I want to make sure that everyone oh, knows. Those are very complicated and very sketchy. Yeah, like at least to me they are. I'm not good at econ either, so um, please explain. Yeah, so tax haven is in reference to a country or area where the taxes are usually very low. 
and there's not as much like regulation or oversight. So some examples I could give are Monaco, Luxembourg, Panama, <laughs> Samoa, the Bahamas, and the Virgin Islands. I think the most well-known is like the Virgin Islands or like the Bahamas. I think so, yeah. And I do want to emphasize that it is not inherently illegal to start a company in a tax haven. But it is very true that some people choose to do that to avoid being taxed as much. And it could also be that they want to hide the amount of assets they actually have. So it would seem like they're not as wealthy as they really are. They should just spread the wealth. That would help. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Tax havens also make it possible and very easy to launder money, which means hiding the origins of assets you have acquired illegally, for example, through committing So not washing your money. Got it. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) um so and to give an example if we're talking about Finnish law um it's not possible to get any tax benefits by registering or establishing a company in one of these countries at least it's not legally possible so say you are receiving returns on your investments through this company you have founded in Mm -hmm. panama so these returns they would be taxed exactly the same way as they would be if the company was based in Finland. Okay. So, as I already mentioned, it is not illegal to establish a company in a country known as a tax haven, but you just need to disclose any earnings you make from that company to your own country's fiscal authority as you normally would. So, the problems (laughs) begin when you don't do that and you choose to hide profits you make from your company. And this can then constitute tax evasion got it so you have to tell them where you get your money from yeah man yeah you cannot you cannot hide it don't hide <laughs> what it. what if i physically hide my money is that okay that like if i bury it <laughs> i'm not sure <laughs> well um i think that's i think that's a gray area <laughs> maybe don't do that either yeah, i probably would lose it if i buried it forget where i bury it <laughs> yeah don't don't do that don't do that so also since i also mentioned uh, tax evasion I want to clarify between the difference between that and tax planning because essentially tax planning is legal while tax evasion is not, but the line between the two can get a bit murky, you know? Mm. Because tax planning means that you estimate how much you will be taxed and then you take measures to reduce these taxes by choosing the options that will be most beneficial to you in accordance with the laws of your country. So you cannot break the law but you can plan i mean i think that's what big companies do because what is it amazon's gonna pay zero dollars in taxes yeah exactly so tax planning is the key word here um and it is legal to do tax planning you can do it but it can usually turn into tax evasion if you're very aggressive and make use of loopholes in the legislation or to like to diminish or to avoid all taxes so, for example, I, I talked about starting a company in Panama. Uh, if you start this company and you make efforts to hide its existence or the revenues you're getting from this company from the Finnish authorities, then you are essentially benefiting by paying less or no taxes illegally. Got it. Because you are giving the tax officials wrong information false information about your situation and your company, which me- means you are committing tax fraud. Which we don't want to do. Which we don't want to do. 
So because these things are complicated, I just wanted to clear that up before we get to it. So are we ready to get to the actual yes. thing, actual case? Yes. Yeah. So, okay, in 2015, so this was pretty recently, a German newspaper called Zeitung, which is one of the biggest newspapers in Germany, received an email from an anonymous source offering information on a Panini law firm called Mossack von Seppa. I love me some uh, anonymous emails. Doesn't seem sketchy at all or like a scam. <laughs> I know, right? So, um, founded originally by a man called Ramon von Seppa, was also the personal advisor to Panama's president, actually. The company is one of the biggest, or was one of the biggest, that offers tax haven services, and it operates in, or operates back then in over 40 countries. Did not know that was a business. Good to know. I'm in the wrong business. <laughs> and it has uh, previously also been connected to the FIFA and Petrobras corruption scandals. If you've heard about those. Oh, FIFA. I'm not going to go. Yeah. I'm not going to go into it more. You can look that up if you want. But yeah. (laughs) And after some consideration, the German newspaper chose to accept this offer. And they subsequently received a huge number of documents in smaller part on the condition that the the source stay anonymous. I mean, that's fair because... I mean, the people you're ratting on are probably pretty wealthy. Mm, yeah, and there's another thing that even though Zeitung never discovered the identity of the source, it is known that the documents were leaked from inside the company. So, of course, if it's someone from inside the company, they they don't want to reveal their identity because that could lead to problems with their job, which they may fear that they will lose Oh, yeah, it. the call... The call is coming from inside the house. <laughs> Every horror movie ever. But this time it's a, it's a, it's I a know, right? money laundering scandal. Yes. Um, so, taking a look what, at what they had received, the paper realized they had a massive leak on their hands, and they chose to share these documents with an organization called ICIJ, the International Consortium of Investigative Journalists. Okay, that sounds like a Carmen Sandiego kind of organization, you know, where they just, it's a giant shadowy organization of journalists, and they're like, we will find out everything. Basically. Loving it. I'm assuming yes. they wear trench coats and fun hats. Um, <laughs> yeah, maybe they do. I'm not sure exactly. But um, the documents were then given the working name Panama Papers. So that's how the name Panama Papers came to be. Gotcha. So to give you an idea of how big of a leak this really was, there were 2.6 terabytes of information. And to give you a comparison, the WikiLeaks incident, which was in total 1.7 gigabytes, as well as the LuxLeaks incident, which was 4 gigabytes, they both paled in comparison even though they both were considered to be very big leaks when they happened. Uh, I mean, it's like when you compare, if you probably if you were to compare it, like boxes of documents, like it, they're both of them are shadowed, like the original, like bigger leaks, they're shadowed by the size of the documents they're getting. Like it'd be like mm-hmm. looking at a house compared to a skyscraper. You're just like, oh no. And someone has to go through them all. Yes. Yeah. Someone has to go through them all. And that's why they, they decided to, um, 
to contact this mm-hmm. organization. And to also refresh your memory, you don't, you don't remember these two cases. In 2010, a website called WikiLeaks released a large amount of top secret diplomatic documents belonging to the United States. Uh, and then uh, the LuxLeaks incident, it is also known as Luxembourg Leaks, and it refers to documents exposed by the same organization, ICIJ. Reporters from this organization that uh, 300 different foreign companies had avoided taxes with the direct help of Luxembourgish officials. Sketchy. So there's that. Yeah, and well-known Finnish companies were also implicated in that leak, the Lux leak. Now, you can maybe imagine like, the massive difference in size of these leaks. In the Panama Papers, there were in 11.5 million documents, and about half of these were emails. That's just so much. Like, a mat- and, like, think if you printed them out, like, you probably killed a small forest. Yeah. That's a huge amount of documents. And the newest ones of these were from 2015. And on top of emails, the rest of it was basically company documents, statements from different officials, court rulings, passport copies, and then bank statements as well. And they spanned over four decades. And there were over 200,000 companies and organizations implicated. That's a lot. And not only were the names of some very wealthy people mentioned, but also some very powerful politicians from various countries, as well as criminals, including drug lords and mafia I just bosses. remember um, David Cameron, the prime minister of the UK, was on there, and it was a big, big scandal. Mm. That's shady AF. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and there's a lot of, there's, I'm going to link in the show notes, there's this interactive um, page that uh, Wiley did on this, where you can see all the world leaders that are on these. So if you want to look into that more, then <laughs> feel free to click on that link and see, because there's a lot. There's a lot. I, I don't doubt that. That's sad, but I don't doubt that. Yeah. As I mentioned, the documents were shared with ICIJ, the paper shared them, and then ICIJ invited about 100 reporters from different countries to a meeting in München, Germany, to the headquarters of Süddeutsche Zeitung in September of 2015. And among them was also a Finnish reporter called Nina Knuzgalan, who works for Wiley and more specifically for MOT, which is an investigative journalism program. And she has the same name as me. That must mean she's awesome. (laughs) Yeah, she's pretty awesome. I think she's pretty awesome. So the reporters were told that the organization in the newspaper had in their hands the biggest information leak yet. But as you said, there was so much material. So a lot of people were needed to go to look, look through that. And so the reporters were recruited to to basically look through them as they related to their own countries and see what kind of information could be discovered. Yeah, like, if you think about it, legal offices often produce a lot of paperwork because they document everything because they have to, as you should. But for journalists, it gets to be a lot of work and you have to understand it and all that. Yeah. And to give you more of an idea of how many how many reporters were actually doing this, like after the meeting, there were like a few months after the meeting, uh, there were four hundred reporters from one hundred media houses and eighty different countries around the world working on this project, and it became the biggest ever collaborative effort between investigative reporters. That is amazing. Just to think, because I don't know, we always see 
these movies about journalists and all that, and they always seem like, I need my story. And so it's nice to see, I think investigative journalists tend to be more collaborative just because of the nature of what they have to do. You have to get sources, like you have to work with other journalists and you to build this story. And I think it's fantastic that we it shows like, hey, we can all work together on this. And that's, I mean, 400 pe- getting 400 people to work on something is difficult. Getting three people to work on something for a group project is a nightmare. Just imagine 400 people. It's- that is so much. That is so much. And think about it. There was only two people working on it in Finland. Like, only two people. And there were a bunch of Finnish names also implicated. So even though there's a lot of reporters working on this, there is so much information. Like, you it's it's crazy it's, it's hard like when you think about it when it started coming out it was hard to wrap your mind around it because they were talking about how big it was mm-hmm. and you're just they were talking about how many people from different countries were implicated how many world leaders how many like and you're just th- sitting there just like it's a like with the gif of your mind exploding or something like that it's just you it, it's impossible to think of <laughs> like it is it is really impossible it's not you cannot grasp how big mm-hmm. that is really so I told you that there were two reporters from Finland working on this. So once she got back to Finland, Nina Kinskalan got to work on looking through thousands and thousands of documents with the help of Charlene Rose and Spotlight, which is a Swedish-speaking investigative journalist, journalism program by YLE as well. So Finland is a bilingual country for those of you who are not aware of it. So um, our other official language is Swedish. Fun. Just to give you random information. Finnish facts. Finnish facts, yes. And that powerful politicians were implicated in the Panama Papers. And there were in total 140 politicians or officials from various countries of the world mentioned in the documents. And 12 of them were either current or former, like, high-up leaders. And these included the then Prime Minister of Iceland, Sigmundur David Gunnlaugsson. Okay, I'm just impressed that you pronounced that name beautifully. But oh my god, that's a lot of, like, powerful people. That is a lot of powerful people. And especially, like, being the then Prime Minister of Iceland being discovered there. That's a big deal. (laughs) That's a big deal. So I'm going to go into gulags on a bit um so right before the bank crisis of 2007 if you remember um he had purchased a company called Vintres from Mossack Fonseca with his wife and it was based in the British Virgin Islands yes. so his wife claims uh the couple used this company to invest money they had previously inherited however the Panama Papers revealed that Vintres was also used to buy promissory notes from the three biggest Icelandic banks Kaupthing, Glipniri and Landsbank right before they collapsed and after they collapsed the company then claimed millions of dollars back from the bank. Interesting. Yes, I know, right? So, meanwhile, while this is going on, Gunnarsson was actually one of the politicians trying to come up with a deal with the creditors, which basically meant he was playing both sides of the table, more or less. You can't have your cake and eat it too. Very true, but apparently he <laughs> tried to. And so the Panama Papers also revealed that when he was a bit later selected to become a politician in 2009, he did not reveal that he owned Vintres. And on the last day of that year, 2009, 
He sold his share of Lupus to his wife, who paid one dollar for it. I'm rolling my eyes so hard, you can't even tell. <laughs> and he became the Prime Minister of Iceland in 2013. And ironically, he has on several occasions criticized others for holding their assets in foreign countries. I'm seeing a pot and a kettle and someone calling it black. <laughs> I'm seeing the same thing. <laughs> how, how many po- simple, like, common phrases can I get into this? <laughs> I'm like, <laughs> A lot. We can start counting if you want. But um, he was actually not the only Icelander who was implicated in the papers either. So the Minister of Finance, Bjarni Benediksson, as well as the Minister of Internal Affairs, Olaf Nordal were found in the documents as well. So uh, I'm probably pronouncing them wrong, but I'm going off of Swedish, so I hope it's like somewhat correct. I apologize to Icelandic people who are listening if it's completely I think incorrect. you're good. I hope so. Um, so the Swedish TV and Reykjavik media did an interview with Gunn Lauksen in 2016 after all this information had been discovered, though the general public was not yet aware of it at that point, like they didn't know. And Gunn Lauksen was asked about Winters in this interview, and he ended up walking out of the whole session. Oh, that's not good. I will link the clip in the show notes so you can see it for yourself, but it's actually like very, it is very awkward to watch. It is very awkward to watch because he basically gets caught more or less red-handed. He got caught with his hand in the cookie jar? <laughs> yeah, basically. He, he starts to really stumble in his words and he goes a bit red and then he starts explaining and it just, it just, and he just says like, oh, like, um, why are you like tricking me into this interview, like to do an interview mm-hmm. like this? Um, because like if you're gonna, you can scratch, like reschedule an interview with me to talk about this specifically. But now you're like talking about something else, and then all of a sudden you ask me these questions, like you're trying to trick me into saying something. And the journalist was just like saying like, oh, but you're the prime minister of Iceland, like, of, can I not like ask you? about these things like am i not allowed to ask you oh that just looks so bad it looks so bad and you can tell like he's like give me some time to prepare some answers about this and then we can talk about it and it's like no you're a world leader you should be able to talk about anything at any given time or at least basically yeah so four days after this his wife wrote on her facebook page that she had a company in a tax haven and she stated that Winfrey's belonged to her and her only. And the fact that her husband had been marked in the papers as an owner was a mistake. But I mean, the damage had already been done because the Panama Papers showed quite clearly that Kunwakson had sold his share to his wife for one dollar. Yeah, also, legal papers, like ownership like that, is really hard to make a mistake on, I believe. Yeah, I would think so. Let's all hope so, for legal sake. Let's hope so. The couple was then suspected of tax evasion, though Kunnaukson strongly denied all of the accusations, of course. So once all of this came out to the general public, Icelanders started demanding that Kunnaukson resign, and they organized a huge protest, one of the biggest in the history of the country. Good for them. Good for them. I'm, I'm saying the same thing. Good for them. And in April of 2016, Gunnlaugsson finally did just that, and he gave up his position as the Prime Minister of Iceland, 
though he kind of did it in a way that well he kind of said oh i'm stepping down for an like an in like for a period of time that can't oh, be an indefinite period of like, time i'm going to yeah like an indefinite period of time i'm stepping down he didn't like to like oh i'm resigning he didn't really own up to it like at least the the reports and the news coverage i saw about that he didn't really admit to doing anything to having done anything wrong or or like or like owning up to it like understanding that this is the time to step down he could have made it look at least a little bit better by saying hey i get it i messed up i'm going to resign because it's i would it wasn't fair to my country so i'm going to try to make amends by removing myself from this situation until and maybe coming yeah. back but it has to be after this whole situation is investigated by the proper authorities exactly exactly and like at least saying something like that would be a bit like owning up owning up to it like hey like i understand the situation and i understand the gravity of the situation so there are connections to vladimir putin as well isn't there so always people who belong <laughs> yeah you're probably right this is not a surprise, but um, his name was not directly found in there. But people who belonged to his inner circle were implicated. And the papers revealed a complicated web of companies these people had in different tax havens. So over a billion dollars of funds was discovered to have been transferred over the span of two years from Putin's favorite bank, Bank Rossiya in St. Petersburg, to a tax haven company owned by his close friend. How do you get a favorite uh, bank? I'm not sure, but it was stated in a lot of sources that I read that it was his favorite bank. And I'm not sure... <laughs> Putin's wearing, like, the t-shirt, Why? like, the bank's t-shirt or something? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I really have no idea. I, I, I Someone I, I please tell us how we know this is Putin's favorite bank. We're both curious. Please comment on something. Yeah, please tell us. <laughs> and then another very famous name uh, was found, Lionel Messi, who is the famous Argentinian football player. He was also found mentioned in the papers along with his father. So according to the documents, they owned a company called Megastar Enterprises together. And after the league in the summer of 2016, a Spanish court in Barcelona found them guilty of tax evasion of 4.1 million euros and sentenced them to 21 months of probation each. Not, not great, but I guess. But they were also ordered to pay a fine worth of 3.7 million euros in total. So Messi was to pay a bit over 2 million and his father about 1.5 million. Good. Get them. Like, hey, you have to pay your taxes. Taxes help things function. Yeah, at least there was that. So they um they appealed, but um or Messi appealed, but but uh, it was it remained the same. So that <laughs> He's was like, that. But judges, I don't deserve to pay this much in taxes, and they're like, we're so sorry for you. Now pay your taxes like a good little boy. <laughs> so actually, um, reporters and camera camera crews from a lot of countries. Finland, the United States, Australia, Germany, and France actually went over to Panama to personally visit the offices and to see if they could talk to someone. And they had sent over um, the questions in advance, but when they got there, they were not let in and the police were called. Interesting. So clearly you have things to hide if you're not answering. Oh, nice eyebrow wiggle at that. Um, it's clearly a... a 
bit of some suspiciousness and some red flags. So it's, I'm gonna assume it's like like about four red flags, and you're gonna swing them into like two arms, like they're big ones though. So you're like marching band kind of flag people. Four of those. But they refused to give up, even though they were not let in. They didn't give up, and they asked to meet Carlos Sosa, who was the director of marketing, and he actually did come. An hour later, he appeared in the lobby to meet with them, but he did not really say much. He said that most of Fonseca had had nothing to do with uh, money laundering or tax evasion, but this visit maybe had some kind of an effect. Maybe it was through this visit, maybe something else, most likely this visit, because the next day, Ramon Fonseca announced he would be stepping down from his position as the personal advisor to Panama's president and his own party's leader. But he also stated he was the victim of an international conspiracy and that Mossack Fonseca had had nothing to do with the illegalities it was being accused of. I mean, it's a pretty big international conspiracy with a lot of documentation. And I tend to go with the theory that the simplest, like, story is often the truth. And the simplest story is rich people don't like paying taxes. No one likes paying taxes, but we have to do it, otherwise society will crumble. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I understand that you would deny it immediately, but, like, a more neutral response might be, like, we need to get to the bottom of this, like, what happened. Just saying, like, denying it. Like, denying it that strongly is just going to show, like, oh, <laughs> like, maybe you are. He doth protest too much. <laughs> yeah. Uh. So let's get to the finished portion of this. So uh, the documents revealed the names of hundreds of Finns, in total about 300 of them. There were no politicians, but other than that, the 300 included all kinds of people, athletes, lawyers, small and big companies, entrepreneurs, and big-time investors. Though most of these names would really not be recognizable to the general public. I'm proud of you guys. You had zero politicians, which I think the U.S. had a bunch of politicians. Yeah, and I'm really, I'm, I'm kind of surprised, but at the same time, I'm happy that there were no politicians in there. Good for you, Finland. Good for yeah. you. Good for us. I'm happy. Good job. Some of their identities are still in the dark, and they're they still being looked into and it is also good to know here that Mossack Fonseca did not usually interact directly with the owners of the tax haven companies but with instead with professionals like lawyers, tax planners or institutions like banks that in turn were helping their customers to establish um, these types of companies and to manage them. So it's a web of guilt. Kind of, yeah. And in Finland, the most active middlemen like this were a group of five lawyers and businessmen who also had companies of their own in tax haven. I mean, it takes someone who knows how to skirt the system to help others skirt the system because no one's going to know how to do it on their own. I, I, don't, I don't know tax law. And I know people who have had to study it and they go, it's really confusing and I don't like it. Yeah, and this is... At least what I've read from the sources I look through is this is like normal work for lawyers as well. Like tax plan, people go to them for these kind of things. And like I said in the beginning, it's not illegal to start one in a tax haven. But like, mm, it can get murky. But like, this is, a, this is a part of a lawyer's job. I'm not sure how big of a part, but it is. It's, it's like motives in Game of Thrones, you know? People have good intentions, but the results and the actions to get there aren't always great. And they're gray. Various shades of gray. Yeah. 
Yeah, it's murky. It's, yeah. But then there's a, kind of a big bombshell in here. So one in the papers that is very recognizable is Lovedown. So for those of you who are not familiar with it, it is the largest financial services group operating in the Nordics and the Baltics, and it is based in Helsinki, Finland. That's not good on multiple levels. Yeah, it's it's really not. And actually, yeah, it's really not. And I'm actually also a customer of Nordea, so... You... <laughs> I don't feel... Yeah, no! Yeah, after looking through all this, I'm kind of, I'm kind of reconsidering. Your options, you're like, oh my god, oh. <laughs> yeah. Um, so the Panama Papers revealed that the Nordea Luxembourg unit had founded about 400 companies for Nordea customers in well-known tax havens like Panama and the British Virgin Islands. And they created complicated and secretive structures with ostensible CEOs that actually worked for they actually worked for Mossack Fonseca but they were only marked as the owner of that company or CEO to uh, like basically keep the real owner of the company anonymous so that was the whole idea so the real owner of the company would stay hidden like their identity could not be revealed by marking this other person as the CEO but they were not the CEO it was just like a, a facade it's a shell game of ownership they have like a shiny one they're like look at this one and they move it all around and then they're like where's the owner yes exactly but these names are not secret anymore because they were all found in the papers documentation the reporters were able to like connect these people to the companies so they were not anonymous anymore. But this was not the first time Nordea was in trouble because Nordea is the biggest bank in Sweden and the Swedish fiscal authorities had given it two previous warnings as well as ordered it to pay the highest possible penalty fee, which is 5.3 million euros in 2015, for not having proper supervision for cases of money laundering. And the fiscal authority also stated that Nordea could not tax planning apart from tax evasion. Yeah, you, you'd hope a bank could, like a they could do that. That's kind of their job. They're not very good at it. That was the worst part for me. You're like, you're not good at your job, but you're helping people expect you to be good at your job. It's a whole mountain. It is a mountain of nope. That company, it's a company mountain. The the company is a mountain of nope. And Lorna took all of this critique seriously, or at least it stated it did, and claimed it would work to improve its operations. Yeah, through this Panama paper leak, it seemed like Nordea maybe hadn't really learned after They're all. They're doing the public facade of, look at what we've learned. We're, we're fixing it. And behind the scenes, they're like, keep doing the same thing. We're making so much money. Yeah, basically. Mobs are ruling, man. Which is sad. It's what the mobs do. So the Finnish reporter Nina Knuzgaran also found some quite confusing messages between Nordea and Mossack Fonseca. So in 2013, Nordea sent a message to Mossack Fonseca um, asking the company to either or replace the name Bianca Scott from old documents where she was named the CEO of a tax haven company founded by Nordea to one of its clients. So the bank wanted this name removed from the papers because by that time Bianca Scott had actually been dead for eight years. <laughs> yeah, but while she had already been deceased, 
Her name and signature had somehow still been used in some documents. Witchcraft. Is she a zombie? Yeah, I don't know. It seems suspicious. It's, it doesn't seem suspicious. It is suspicious. It's very stitious. And then another thing, uh, in 2012, Nodia had also asked Mossack Fonseca to change the dates retrospectively on top of attorney documents. So No. No, no. No, don't no. do that. You're, you're like, no, no that's don't do that. So don't do that. So the bank asked Mossack Fonseca to change the power of attorney for three clients so that they would be in effect already from 2010 instead of 2012, which would be two years earlier. So in the final like documentary produced by Mott, uh, Carlos Barsario, uh, a lawyer and the former head of the Panama Financial Authority, stated that it is unethical and illegal to change the dates retrospectively. And he basically said that this kind of request should not be made in the first place and it should not be accepted by the entity it is made to. Yeah, I mean, I'd be so curious to figure out who they were trying to do that for, just because it seems like... So for people who don't know, power of attorney um, is what you use when someone is not physically able to do stuff for themselves. So normally there's a medical power of attorney and a financial power of attorney. And please don't ask me how I know this much about it. But um, the medical power of attorney say someone like your husband in the hospital normally the spouse is given always has the power of attorney so you you then can make medical decisions for them you can go get their drugs can confer on procedures and whatnot a financial power of attorney is pretty much you can pay bills for them you can take money out um lots of things and you can see how both of these are problematic in their own sense if the wrong person's in charge so if they're retroactively dating them I'm curious to why and, like, what happened to said person. Yeah, yeah. It is very sketchy to me. It is very sketchy and, like, um, like saying that it is unethical, like, I think that's... Uh, yeah, it's sketchy like an etch-a-sketch. So the Swedish Financial Authority started an investigation on Nordea because of this, uh, but they later decided they would not punish the bank further based on the Panama Papers leak because it had already demanded Nordea to pay a penalty fee and fix the issues that had been pointed out and the problems that had arisen earlier. Um, they were the same type of problems that were revealed in the Panama leak. It's the, clearly they're not doing anything, so I think more penalties seem in order, or like oversight. Like, hey, we're going to have Jim follow you around for a while. Jim knows what he's doing. Jim. <laughs> I, I was watching things about the office, and Jim's gonna help you fix your problem because clearly you're having issues. But there is some more penalties because the Luxembourg Financial Authority did find Nordea and eight other financial service companies in total 2.1 million euros as a cause of the leak for um, violating the money laundering laws of Luxembourg. Dang! So at least there was something, some consequences. And a lot of politicians also stated, uh, Finnish politicians also stated that they would be changing banks after this week. Uh, I mean, that's fair. That's really fair. Like, hey, you don't know what you're doing. I'm going to vote with my account and say bye bye. Uh, bye bye. Uh, bye bye. Bye bye. Adios. Ciao. Ciao. What else I want?
<laughs> we can't go down this rabbit hole. So there was <laughs> just a, yeah, we should not. But there was also another big Finnish company mentioned in the documents, and this was Metso that operates in the field of industrial machinery and employs over 13,000 people in 50 countries. Not good. Not good. In the Panama Papers, it was revealed large sums of money had been transferred from a Panamanian company to Metso, but through a Swiss bank account in between. So, these transfers had been made by a man called Alexei Sukmanov, who was working as the head of sales for the Metso Russia unit. And he has at least five companies in Panama, according to the documents, and these payments were made through one called Orbit Management. So this is going to... When you have one tax haven company, why not have five? Yeah, maybe they are for different purposes. <laughs> it's like Pokemon, you gotta collect them all. Maybe, I guess so, at least for him. So this is, this is going to get a bit complicated, but basically, Orbit Management paid about 65,000 euros to Metso, through a Swiss bank account, and this was as a payment for walls and commission fees. So this payment was from a Russian company called NTA Prom, which then sold some walls forward to a Swedish company called Euroarm Group. But in this process, the bill now became over 350,000 euros instead of 65,000. So this 350,000 euros was then recycled back into Sukhmanov's company in Panama, Orbit Management. That is a lot of effort. It is, and this complicated scenario was repeated various times. So in total, Sukhmanov had moved around tens of millions of euros as well as large amounts of gold with the same tactic through Swiss banks with the intention of recycling it back to his own company in Panama. You can do this with gold? I don't know, I guess you can. It said that it, that's what it said, so that's what I have I'm here. just thinking, well, I guess it would be, like, digital gold, like, it, something like that, because you have to send the gold places, and it's kind of heavy. Yeah, maybe it's, um like, in digital form. That would make more sense. Blown my mind here. I don't know the logistics of that. Like, I haven't looked into it. It's just crazy. I just know that there was gold It's just involved. crazy to think of. It's a lot of effort to just not pay taxes. I know. And in the Mod documentary, uh, Minna Knuskalan showed these documents to Jarmo Karajan, who is the former chief internal auditor at Metso, and he stated that there is a clear indication of money laundering there because the bill went mm-hmm. higher. And she also showed the papers to the then current internal auditor and lawyer at Metso, although this was without cameras. And at that time, she was told Sukmana was still working for Metso. How? <laughs> yeah, maybe it was the first time they, they had heard of it. I don't know. But later on, she was able to get an interview with cameras from the finance director of the company, Harri Nikunen, who stated after having uh, examined all the notes written down from the first meeting that the company itself, Metso, was not involved in any illegalities, but that one of its employees, uh, Alexei Sukmanov was suspected to be. And I mean, that's kind yeah. of fair. Nonetheless, yeah, and nonetheless, he, st- he, he was very clear in that Metsa um, would take any suspicion like this very seriously. And he also said that an internal inspection process had been started to get to the bottom of 
So that is the correct response, unlike some of the responses we have seen. Exactly. This is how I want people to respond to this type type of stuff. Um, And right before the final documentary was published, so Mod received the information that the internal inspection had been completed. And as a cause of this inspection, Alexei Sukman, who had worked for METSO for 15 years by that time, he was fired. Good. That seems fair. You don't use your work. You launder money for yourself. That's just kind of common knowledge. Yeah, don't. It's not a good idea. And it was, it was revealed during that inspection inspection that Metso itself had not been a part of committing any illegalities and had not suffered financially as a cause of what. Yeah, it just the way you were stating how he did it. It really does seem like it was just him because it was all going back to him, and he might have just. Because he was high up, he saw an opportunity and he took it. Mm-hmm. Basically, yeah. Um, other well-known names in the papers for, for example, that of Dieter Rosberg, who was a racing driver. He was the first Finn to win the Formula One World Championships in 1982. And he is the father of Nico Rosberg, who won the 2016 Formula One World Championships, though he is now retired. Um, and for a long time already, Dieter Rosberg has been living in Monaco in the south of France, but around the time he won the World Championships, he had founded a company called Euro Promotions Inc. in 1981 in Panama. And the identity of the real owner of the company, who was Rosberg, naturally was hidden by marking two companies from Jersey as the owners and a woman from Jersey as the ostensible CEO. Yeah, that's not sketchy at all. He sold his house in Ibiza in 1997 through this company, but it was finally buried in 2001, so it doesn't exist mm. anymore. However, in 2005, Rosberg and his son, uh, Nico, founded a new company in Luxembourg called Grand Ocean, and according to the... <laughs> Are you kidding me? You're doing it again. And according to the documentary, it had acid spills in 2014. I mean, in the scheme of these things, we've been talking about billions and hundreds of millions of dollars. They're small fish. But if you don't punish the small fish, in this sense, they're going to become bigger fish. And they're going to keep doing this. Yeah, and they're going to become even bigger fish. That's how fishes get bigger, guys. They just eat keep eating. That's how you get giant goldfish. Exactly. And on top of this, it was also revealed that Nico Rosberg had signed a racing contract in 2014 when he was still racing through a company of his called Ambitious Group Limited that was registered at the British Virgin Islands. So that's also a bit suspicious. so dumb. They are. They should just be like, this is not money laundering, Inc. So then there was another businessman called Raun Pualematka who had this company called Rapu Globo. And it had been founded in 2005 in Panama through Mossack Fonseca as well, but it was paid in 2015. And in 2008, he had tried to purchase a work of art called Tantia Eskenyak by the famous Finnish artist Helena Schierbeck from the Sotheby's auction in London through this company that he had. But someone else purchased it with a much higher price than what he offered. And other than this artwork, it is not really clear from the documents what else he had used the company for. So I don't have any other info on that. It's probably just some way to buy really fancy things without paying a lot of taxes. Yeah, that's, that's what it would seem like. 
but he, he never got the artwork. Someone else bought it. Good for them. <laughs> yeah, good for them. It's a pretty pretty work of art. You can Google it if you want. And, uh, let's get to the to the consequences. So as a consequence of this leak, in April of 2016, the Finnish Fiscal Authority demanded that Wiley and the two reporters from Mott and Spotlight, Knuz Karan and Lindo, hand over all the Panama Paper documents they had, as well as other material they had gathered during the investigation. So these demands were based on regulations that stated that everyone has the duty to hand over information to the fiscal authority that relates to taxing a taxpayer, as well as other regulation having to do with gathering information and inspecting the taxpayer's position. But Ule was wily. Ule wily was very um, stern in this, and they refused to give up the papers. And they, they filed a complaint to the administrative court about this. And the Helsinki administrative court overruled the demands of the fiscal authority in 2017, stating that Wiley did not need to hand over the material to the authorities. And the court stated that if the documents were forced to be handed over to an authority against the wishes of the holder of the documents, the media might later on have a difficult time obtaining such documents in the first place. So if you're forced to give them over, then people might not even want to like leave these kind of documents or give these kind of documents to you, or you might not be able to get them because there's a fear that you will have to give them over to someone else and it will not be confidential. Yeah, the journalistic protection of sources is really key for a lot of places because... It gets, it can get people killed, it can get, you know, we can ruin lives, and a lot of these people just are trying to do a good thing. Um, I'm, like, you have Chelsea Manning, um, Snowden did it, um, the WikiLeaks guys, everyone thinks he's in, uh, he's going to jail for that, but no, he's going to jail for rape, so that's not his problem, but yeah, like, people are just trying to do it the right way and alert when governments or institutions are doing wrong and i think it's fair you should be able to do that because yeah you should be this was the right decision yeah because currently the u.s is going through another whistleblower scandal and he the the person i'm just gonna say he i'm not making it a sexist thing it's just gonna be easier uh did it correctly he went through the proper channels and like i guess it's the most beautifully written whistleblower report they've ever seen that was a new story. Yeah, yeah, big thing. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. We'll see what comes out of that. Be happy, you're in Finland. Yeah, I'm. I'm happy. Your government I'm happy. isn't currently on fire. Uh, the fiscal authority actually appealed further, but the highest <laughs> the highest administrative court upheld the original ruling. They stated that the fiscal authority had not established a strong enough connection between their request unlike an actual concrete tax related matter that would show the officials that they need that would show that they needed the papers that they had to have them that's fair i mean you need to do your due diligence and good for the court saying hey yeah no you didn't show you have to show us what you're going to do with this like if you're going to take them you know and prove it and in, in your tax code mm, yeah so as for mosok fonseca the company act uh, eventually actually closed down in April of 2018, just last year, while still claiming the company had not committed any crimes and neither had its clients. 
I bet that it's closed, quote unquote. But it really just reopened as another company. That's my bet. Might be. And in 2016, uh, Mossack Fonseca stated uh, they would sue ICIJ, the uh, reporter organization, the organization of investigative reporters, which had, according to the company, committed a crime against them and had obtained the documents illegally through a security breach. That sounds like a them problem, not a reporter problem, you know? I know, right. <laughs> And um, lately, there have not been any further news on this lawsuit as um, much as I could find. Like, I couldn't find anything on this, so maybe it was dismissed, or I, I don't know, but there have been no I news guess on this. I guess they're no longer a company, so... Mm, yeah. They're no longer a company. Where did all the documents go that they had? That's a good question. We should listen Some to food that. for thoughts, guys. Some thoughts for food. <laughs> so... Thank you so much for listening to the 55th episode of True Crime Film Crime Stories from the Cold North. Yay! Yay. So, Courtney, where can people find you? Music, you can contact me via email at truecrimefilmandpod at gmail.com. And there is a Facebook group called True Crime Film and Podcast. And I'm on Twitter and Instagram at True Twitter and Instagram at TC underscore Finland. And you can find all my episodes on my website at truecrimefinland.squarespace.com or wherever you get your podcast. Yay! Done! Well, hello, my friends. This is CK from the Marths and Monsters podcast. Join me, my companion Finn, and my occasionally satanically possessed cat Ray. Puny mortals! as we investigate the real truths behind some of the most wonderful creatures you can imagine. Are trolls really that thick? Or is it just bad press? Are leprechauns really drunken bums? Sort of. But there's a lot more to find out. All you need to do is tune in to Marths and Monsters podcast with me and Finn. Till next time, slancha your good health. Hi, this is Minna from True Crime Finland. Ah, Finland, so peaceful and quiet. There isn't even any crime there, right? Wrong. Join me every two weeks in discovering the dark side of the land of a thousand lakes. From legendary and infamous to the lesser-known and forgotten Finnish cases, the podcast will be sure to offer something for everyone. Find True Crime Finland wherever you get your podcasts. Cults of Domesticity, we're available on all podcatchers. Remember to rate, review, subscribe to help spread the word or just force other people to listen to it. Our Facebook and Twitter are at domestic podcast and our instagram is at the cult of domesticity we also have podcast merch at threadless uh as well if you want to support us financially or show some appreciation we have a paypal tip jar and a patreon which has some pretty great perks any topic suggestions feel free to email us at domesticpodcast at gmail.com remember to stay domestic and cult free